You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This year, we've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of investment experts in asset classes other than property. We've been learning quite a lot about the share market, particularly in our interviews with Scott Phillips and Roger Montgomery, and we've discussed philosophical parallels and distinctions between investment in real property and equities. The topic of active versus passive investing has come up quite a lot, and recently, we discuss index funds in greater depth with Balaji Gopal from Vanguard. So it seems we need to balance the scales a little and have a chat with an expert in active funds management. We've also learned from our conversations with a number of economists that there are macro environmental forces that play out on both a national and an international level that trickle down and affect our local property markets. So in this episode, we pick the brains of Douglas Isles, a man who can help us understand more of these complex issues. In fact, Douglas has a degree in something I was always told you could only get if you were seriously brainy. He's an actuary. Is it true you have to study for seven years to be an actuary? Look, it's a sort of undetermined amount of time. You've got to pass a certain number of exams. So uh, I think I, I actually did it in three years. I was, I was pretty motivated <sighs> at the time. Um, <laughs> Very so brainy was, then. Yeah, back when I was 21 living in Scotland. And I think the big thing was that you got a pay rise if you passed an exam. And at the very end, you were entitled to a company car. So the, the mot- motivation was pretty clear. Very high. And I uh, got through it as quickly as I could. <laughs> so now, however, Douglas is an investment specialist at Platinum Asset Management, a company that describes itself as a true active manager that focuses on one asset class, international shares, and as a contrarian long-term philosophy. Well, that last point has certainly piqued my interest. I'm looking forward to this chat. Thank you for joining us, Douglas. Thanks very much for having me. Good to see you, Douglas. Nice to see you, Chris. Just for the listeners, I used to work with Douglas back 12 years ago when I didn't have a hair on my face and um, my job was to order the beers on a Friday. That was pretty much what I had to do. <laughs> so um, good to see you. Uh, for our listeners, um, I'm sure they've heard about Platinum Asset Management. I mean, they you know, they are in the papers pretty much every day and you know, the, you know got you know, buildings with their names on it and they're pretty well known. Um, what's Platinum's approach to investing, just more broadly? Yeah, I think uh, you know, Veronica mentioned the word contrarian and that, that to some extent uh, captures what what we're trying to do, but it's a bit more than that. Um, when Karen and Andrew set the business up back in 1994, our founders, uh, Karen Nielsen and Andrew Clifford, uh, they, they really had a belief that they had a way of making money, and that way of making money really revolved around two things. One is that that sort of contrarian idea, if you like, the idea of avoiding the crowd, and the other thing was really this sense that a lot of the best opportunities for investing uh, happen when there is change taking place, and when change is taking place the market often gets it wrong. So the market finds it hard to interpret big changes that are taking place. And, and over time, what that's meant is we've had a lot of attention paid to things like technology, healthcare, 
and looking very closely at countries like China and India where things are, are changing rapidly because the market tends to, to misunderstand them. The third component of it was really this idea that we would try not to lose money for clients as well. And oh, that's, that's not very, a bad idea. It's, yeah. it's probably quite a good idea. <laughs> and I think that's where you know we talked about in the, in the entree, you talked about uh, passive investing. The problem with passive investing is it rides the market up and it rides the market down. Uh, the way we approach things, we take a very conservative approach to to the markets. In fact, if we even keep up with the market when it's rising, we we think we're doing a pretty good job because we spend a lot of energy and a lot of attention on on what can go wrong, and we use various tools and techniques to try and protect our clients from loss. and And that can include, you know, holding more cash than you would expect. It can include um, managing the currency positions within the fund. It can also include what's uh, known as short selling where we actually try to profit from the falls in share prices of companies that we think are overvalued. Okay, cool. So in terms of Platinum, you've got lots of different funds, but where, where the majority of your money, where are you focusing a lot of your attention in, in the past and in the future? Yeah, look, so the business, we manage about $25 billion, and, and most of that is Australian um, people's savings, a uh, combination of superannuation and, and money that people have outside of super. But um, when when you look at our assets across the board, about two-thirds of them are invested in what is effectively our flagship global portfolios, uh, best known as the, as the Platinum International Fund. And then about 20% of our assets are invested in our Asian strategy. So that's investing only within the Asian region, which we define as, if you like, continental Asia. It doesn't include, doesn't include Japan, doesn't include Australia. Uh, then we have another a range of other smaller funds, uh, regional and sector funds that make up the balance of other 10% of the assets. But we've really made our name and, and we're best known for our, our global investing and, and to a lesser extent what we do within the Asian region. And the, you know, the index versus passive debate. I mean, a lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence out there that index investing is potentially a better option than kind of going and trying to pick fund managers. And, you know, there's been a lot of funds that have underperformed the index yeah. over many years and yeah. a lot of you know, younger investors have kind of seen that research, yes. have kind of, you know, seen how funds have underperformed and they're like, well, these index things seem quite simple and yep. they should invest in them. What's your argument to kind of people who are thinking that index is the kind of the God strategy and should not do anything else besides yep. index? Well, I think I think the best evidence really comes in a downturn. So, you know, what we've, what we've had is we've had this sort of unprecedented, long, unbroken period for markets. So, you know, we're in what's, a bull market that's been gone for more than 10 years. If you think back to GFC, the market's bottomed uh, in March 2009. And so March 23rd. So oh, there you go. So, <laughs> <laughs> remember it well. March I actually had a guy invest on right. that day. And I remember the conversation. And at the time, I was like, he's like, I was really nervous. You didn't have much cash. And I was like, mate, if things get lower from here, yeah. You know, you've got to, be, you know, it's all-time lows, and uh, he's done extremely well since yeah. that day. <laughs> well, no, people, people who did, but mo most people tend to do the opposite. They tend to, they tend to panic when things are mm. are not going so well. You know, in if you look at the, the tax years, which are probably the easiest thing to think of from an Australian perspective, 08 and 09 combined, global markets fell by a third. Uh, our flagship portfolio was down one percent over these two years. So basically, you started the bull market with a hundred dollars when the market, you know, the index investors only had sixty-seven left. Uh, and that that really makes a very big difference. But mm. over the last ten years, I think what index investing has done in that period is given you an adequate outcome. Regardless, ignore what active does. I mean, you've, you've made an adequate return from being exposed to the market. And mm. you know the first the first premise that we have as well is that equities are the best store of wealth of any asset class. And I know most of the listeners, it's property that they focus on. But if you go back over the very long term, yes. equities are the best store of wealth. And so if we think of that, then 
we would rather that people expose themselves to the markets in some way and, and indexing would be the adequate solution. Mm. You can think of it like with uh, with car brands, for example, and I don't want to rubbish any particular brands, but there are, there are cars which are very, very basic and they, they will get you from A to B. But then there are cars and, you know, the, the Germans being a good example, if you, if you own a German car, getting from A to B will be a lot more comfortable. Uh, you'll, have mm. a, you'll have a smoother ride. So what we can do with active investing is we can really try and make the journey easier for investors. And you know, when you have these big sell-offs, um, people tend to panic. And so one of the things we're doing at Platinum is we're trying not to lose money. The problem with the passive strategies at that point, people see their funds down 30, 40, 50%, and then they sell and then they lock it in and they, they probably go to cash and they probably come back in you know, several years later when the market's gone already gone up by 50 or 100%. So they, they miss out twice. Mm, so yeah. what we're doing in, in, is really using our skill to get what would be called better risk-adjusted returns. You know, I often find particularly with property that people take far too much risk for the return they get. Yeah, and I think, you know, with property, they, they're too unforgiving. So, you mm. know, they, they'll get bad returns in property and they're yeah. like, oh, you know, all property goes up. Oh, it'll come back and things like that. And they're a little bit more patient with property, even into poor assets. But yeah. my worry with index investing, which is going to come up in the next few years, whether it's next year or 21 or 22 or 23, there will have to be an end to the bull run, which has been going for, you know, ridiculous length of time. Yeah. And all the index investors will sell at the wrong time, crystallize all their losses. And then the whole indexing will just kind of look, go out of fashion again and people have lost a lot of money. So I guess that's the big fear that's coming for index investors exactly. that don't know how to play that market. Exactly right. And look, Vanguard is the, is the big champion of investing, uh, index investing. They've done a fantastic job building their business, but they've built the business on the fact that it works for the time mm. being. And, and people will wish, you know, the Vanguard are getting more money in every day. I think, I think they get a billion dollars of new money every day in the US, more than the entire rest of the industry uh, is seeing, you know, go out yeah. the door. It's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon. Uh, and these things always, you know, we we try and avoid the crowd. We try and uh, move in the other direction uh, before the before the problems arise. Okay, cool. So taking this in a bit of a different direction, there'll always be a role for active and passive. And the real active managers, I believe, you should consider are ones that are contrarian. They are betting against the market because if you're just going to bet with the market, go with an index fund. But you know, look at contrarian investors. Well, that's but even what Ambalaji said. You know, he, he did say you got to find a really good active manager. You know, yes. and there's your challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you don't know if you're betting on luck or skill or whatever. So, mm. I mean, I guess the the real kind of conversation, I guess we want to get into here though, is you know the global story. And and Australia is such a little bubble. You know, yeah. how, what percentage of the world market is Australia? I guess as a stock market, yeah, it probably makes up about two percent um, of the of the global market, and that's actually punching above its weight. I mean, we have an expensive stock market relative mm. to other markets, and uh, you know, if you think about population-wise, we're we're less than one percent, less than half of one percent. Mm. GDP-wise, we're probably about one percent, and then stock market-wise, we're we're about two. So at two, we're we're punching above our weight, and uh, it makes up most people in Australia managing portfolios tend to have about fifty or more percent of their equity portfolio in Australia, which mm. is uh, actually the biggest home bias in the world. So no country in the world puts as much money into their domestic market. Uh, oh, wow. as Australians do. So that's an interesting uh, little statistic for you. And we do love talking about biases on this podcast and uh, a home bias. A home bias is huge. Mm. I think, um, I mean, I was really flabbergasted when I came back to Australia in 2011. I'd been living in London for four years and, um, you know, London was depressed. It was a recession for yeah. 2008. Businesses were shutting down, you know, bars, sort of cafes, nothing was opening up. Um, unemployment yeah. was rising really fast. There was no real end in sight. Interest rates had dropped to zero. Um, lots of people were laying off staff. I came back to Australia and there was 
oh, everything's amazing. Yeah. You know, there's been this mining boom and, <laughs> you know, and nothing had yeah. changed and things like that. And I feel like, you know, they kind of got away through the GFC because yes. obviously China. Um, you know, what's some of the global risks that are happening that Australians aren't really thinking about that could really severely take us into a recession that we kind of have, haven't had for a long, long time. Well, I think, you know, mining's actually doing all right right now, but I think the big thing was that, you know, when China chooses to invest in infrastructure and, and build out, you know, its, um, its backbone, if you like, that's been a big, big benefit to Australia. So, and, and you're absolutely right, Australia avoided the GFC because of, effectively because the Chinese decided to spend on uh, on infrastructure. I was in Singapore at the time, sort of 2009 to, to 12, and I remember Kevin Rudd coming to do a presentation to an audience of Australian business people living in Singapore and trying to claim that he had done whatever he'd done <laughs> to, sa- you know, to save Australia, giving people $900, I think it was, to spend on, on televisions or, or put in the pokies. But <laughs> no, they did a lot of school building as oh, well. They? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> uh, but but it, was, it was funny because we were sitting in a room in, in Singapore where everyone was there because they were trying to capture the Asian growth opportunity. And then here was a guy telling us that he had saved um, Australia from the GFC when everyone in the room knew it was it was China. Uh, mm. and then, oh my God, that's hilarious! Uh, and everyone was asked at the end. We were actually asked. We had to clap when he uh, when he left the room because the, <laughs> the people were just so amazed that this this egotistical um, this guy thought he'd he'd, he'd saved the country. Yes, uh, you can look at all these charts. I was actually doing a presentation yesterday uh, down in regional Victoria and showing charts of the debt situation in China mm. and what if you look at the uh, the growth in debt against the growth of the economy. The spike that they had in 2009 was was off the charts, mm. and that was the big pulse that was about effectively as the rest of the world slowed down and China at that time was very export focused. They needed to find a way to keep people in work mm. because if you know 20, 30 million people were going to lose their jobs, that was not going to be stable in China. So they they went hard, put to the floor on on infrastructure. That wow. actually ended up being overbuilding too much capacity and and led to some problems probably around 2014, 15, mm. uh, as they had too much capacity in a number of industries. We've seen a bit of a repositioning of of the demand from the from the mining sector. But the biggest the biggest question for Australia really comes down. It's not necessarily a one or two year question. It's much more of a a longer term question of what is our our position, if you like, within the world and what are we offering to whether it's developing Asia or whether it's to the developed world, what are we actually trying to sell to the yep. rest of the world? So we hear these great things about, well, it's all about education or it's tourism, uh, healthcare services, what have you. And it's, it's things that, you know, but everyone's trying to sell these things. So, you mm. know, if you, if you think of um, one of the exercises I often ask people to do is if you get a globe and you put Beijing at the sort of center of the globe and then you, and then you look down, Australia doesn't look any closer than yes. Europe or or the America and the West Coast of America. Mm. So so we sit here and we talk about Australia in the Asian century and we talk about how do we fit into this um, this growth story and Asia is the nearest place to us. I mean, Indonesia is not that far from our, our North Coast. So we see that as our obvious market. Mm. It's a long way to London. It's a long way to New York. Mm. However, flip it around and look at it from the perspective of the customer. They can choose equally. I mean, simply yes. in a geographic sense, mm. they, they will choose the best. Really so interesting. You then have to think. And uh, India is the same story, right? If exactly. India is another growth country, I mean, they could go anywhere. Right? And India is a lot closer to Europe than it is to um, yeah. Australia. So you've got to think for that non mining exports or non agricultural exports, not the things that we're digging up and growing where we have a competitive advantage. What are we offering mm. from a skills perspective? And are we mm. educating people to address this? And there's some quite damning statistics when you look at the, the state of education and the, the rank all the 
countries by the the quality of uh, I think it's maths they tend to look at at age. I can't remember the numbers exactly, yeah. but, but Australia's gone from I think it's ninth to twenty first in the world mm. between two thousand six and fifteen. So we're falling behind. So we want to compete. Um, you know, China produces four million STEM graduates a year, and mm. this is what we hear about. We must be you know skilled up in science, technology, engineering, and maths. China's producing four million a year. That's you're probably going to be forty, fifty million in a decade. Mm. That is a you know, it's a UK or a France or a, or a or a Spain worth of people mm. graduating in these subjects. So we've really got to think about what are we trying to what are we trying to produce and sell, and that's that's a big question. So I mean, obviously we've got yeah massive problems from a long term point of view as a big question to the government and yep. society to to become more competitive as a country. We can't just keep growing. We've got to produce yep. something or. But, you know, but I mean, in the short term, yep. you know, what are some of the things that, you know, obviously there's the trade wars and things like that, but what are some of the things that we just aren't aware of that can easily kick off and how things yep. can get pretty bad pretty quick? Yeah, I mean, trade war and, and it's and it's sort of second order effects, if you like, are probably the the, the big thing that people would be concerned about. And I think, I think rightly so. Um, what you have is uh, two superpowers. We haven't had two superpowers going back over 30 years. Like when mm. I was growing up, it mm. was... It was a Cold War. It was U.S. against Russia, and then that that sort of ended, uh, nineteen eighty nine, approximately. So we're really thirty years on from that, and China has really emerged in the last in the last decade, and and, and depending on how you measure it, the economies of the U.S. and China are approximately equivalent. Uh, in a physical sense, China is much larger, but uh, lawyers get paid more mm. in the U.S., and that's still a, a measurable part of that economy. So, but when you when you look at these two superpowers, and as they interact with each other yes. and and the imposition of tariffs i think what we saw in 2018 we saw that the the world is more sensitive to what's going on in china than what people had perceived and there was a big sort of filtering out if you were if you were selling to china last year as they were slowing down you were struggling mm. and and what was happening with the trade tariffs and the uncertainty a lot of decisions get deferred so people aren't sure where they should build their next factory they aren't sure whether they should be uh, building inventory or, or or what these kind of decisions mm. become become very difficult to make if you don't know what the rules are going to be. And we've seen at various points in history, any time there's uncertainty over regulation, the then decisions get deferred. Mm. And so I think as the as we look at the trade war, rather than thinking so much about what Trump's pronouncing and, and what have you, which a lot of which is probably an election game with, with 2020 coming up. Yeah. <clears throat> so you've got on one hand, you've got America taking a or, or the leader of America looking at the next, well, now, now two years, but it's a four-year cycle. You're looking at China reasserting itself after two centuries of not being the world's number one. Mm. And China's gone through most of its history being the technology, technology leader, military leader, wealthiest country in the world. And it's had these two years where it's been, sorry, two centuries where it's been taken over first by the UK and then by, by America. So it's trying to reassert itself on the, on the world stage, and it's very patient. So don't don't look at the headlines, but when there are headlines, accept that there will be deferral of decisions and there'll be confusion. Yes. Yeah. And so short term, there's there's all sorts of things can hit us. It could be, you know, monetary policy in China, the US or Europe can affect effectively our relative position. Are our interest rates attractive or not? Do we attract capital, not attract capital? What does it mean for our currency? Um, but I think it's that big picture question of what is our role in the the next maybe a decade from now, and, and mm. how do we get there? Which will which will really have a will really have a bigger impact. Well, it makes a lot of sense, right? If if there is a bit of uncertainty on where things are going to be, you know, yeah. it happens with elections every 
you know, three or four, you know, yeah. everyone's like, oh, well, we've got to wait for the election. So they stop hiring staff, they stop building, yeah. they stop investing. And well, look at um, our energy policy or lack thereof. Yeah. Yeah. But, but here, the franking credits was a big thing. So there was a big debate about in the stock market in Australia, it was franking credits. Would mm. we lose mm. franking credits? Would we not lose franking credits? In the property market, it was negative gearing or otherwise. And so you had this so-called relief rally on a, on a maintenance mm. of, of government, which was effectively people making decisions ahead of the election uh, for something that actually never ended up happening. So, you know, I guess um, interest rate story has gone a completely flipped in the last yeah. you know few months and you yeah. know we were potentially us were increasing rates we were potentially going to increase rates a yes. lot of talk then it's all like no we're cutting rates and we're going lower yeah. and we might even go under one percent yes and a lot of um people think we're becoming a bit japanese right in yeah. terms of we're going to have very low interest rates you yes. always tell um a story around how japanese have got themselves into that position yeah and are we going to go to that ourselves yeah, and it's very, it's very interesting because there's a there's a phrase the Japan Japanification, uh, which probably applies most to Europe. Uh, Europe's got negative rates across uh, a lot of the major countries, and even corporates. At Nestle were borrowing money at a negative interest rate, and and I find how does that? Can you explain how that works? Actually, it's very hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, it's the idea. You always get this the wrong way around, but the idea is that when you borrow money, normally you would you would you would pay the bank to borrow money. Uh, this this situation is that you are paid. Uh, to, to borrow money. To borrow money. Yes. yes. And I and thought so that must be what it means, but that just seems ridiculous. I reckon they might be giving free chocolate or something. There the must be one. something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not easy to comprehend. So the idea at the moment is that everyone thought rates were effectively bounded at zero because yes. if you were not going to get um, rewarded for, or, or sorry, if, you, if you're going to have to um, think about the other side of it, the, mm. the, the lender, um, the lender would effectively do something else with the capital. They yeah. wouldn't. They wouldn't lend it to you and and, and receive and a negative pay you rate for the privilege of lending yes. you money. So it's all it's all very confusing. But probably now we're probably now almost a decade on from the GFC, and that's that's really you know, shortly after that we went to this position of negative rates because zero itself wasn't helping to, to mm. stimulate the economy. So yeah, you know, we could go there in Australia. Um, mm. We could go there, but the, but what's happening in the rest of the world is the longer we're in a position where zero or slightly negative is not working, yes. the more the discussion moves to what else can we do. Mm. So we're kind of catching up now to where everybody else got to yes. several years ago. Yes, Japan got there first. They had a huge bubble uh, back in the late 80s. And you know, property in Japan, the, the, the anecdotes were mm. crazy. I think the story was that the Emperor's Palace was worth as much as California, so I'm yes. sure it's exaggerated. But the, 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 bubble, the bubble was probably the most obscene we've seen in any asset uh, in at least modern history, mm. more so than even the tech bubble or, the, or resources. Um, so Japan got there first, and it's just this sort of malaise, if you like. And you know, property in Japan is interesting. People get a reasonably high yield, but they expect the value of the property to go down every year. Mm. So uh, you know, they look at the equation in a, in a very different mm. way. Whether we get to negative in Australia, whether we get close to zero, um, I think the bigger question is, you know, we are that small country. What is happening in the US? What yes. is happening in Europe? Do they move to what is probably being described as modern monetary theory? Uh, modern monetary theory is not modern. It's what they did, in, I think, in the 30s. Mm. Uh, but the idea is that the government starts spending more money. Mm. And what we've had is a couple of decades or even more where fiscal discipline has been very important, all about trying to balance the budget. And a lot of the debate in this country has been about which side of politics would be more conservative when it comes to managing the budget but the sort of monetary modern monetary theories are more the idea that well if zero interest rates don't work then governments have to start spending money 
Mm. And that becomes then it's no longer about balancing budgets. It's more about effectively just creating economic activity, whether mm. and hopefully through products that are projects that are productive. But you also get the sense in, in Japan at various points they were building roads to nowhere to yes. either win votes or or just to keep people employed. I mean, ultimately you got people digging a hole, filling it back in and digging it again just to just to stay in work. So mm. it's uh, it's an interesting where we get to on that. And you know, already you've got Trump cutting taxes and increasing spending. The U.S. budget mm. is not balanced. Uh, they're in deficit ten years into a boom, mm. which is a concern. Mm. And they also have underfunded liabilities in pensions, social yes. security, medical. So, you know, for all the US is in this sort of apparently robust position and Wall Street's been doing very well and the stock market's been going up, you know, that's not a a, a long-term sustainable position either. Mm-hmm. And if they go harder on the on the investments or the or the fiscal spending side, it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. And we'll probably go back into this experimental territory again that, that no one really understands. Yeah, it's good thing about in, no, negative interest rates. Noel, if you're listening, uh, Noel Whitaker, um, he did. A, I love his um, his newsletter. And um, there's a case in Denmark, I think it is, and a mortgage holder is actually getting paid to have paid to have a mortgage. Yes. So it's gone all the way, not only for governments and corporates. Yeah. It's actually gone all the way down to consumers now that are getting paid to have mortgages. Okay, you have to explain it to me. So who is giving them the money and why? So you go to CBA to get your yeah. home loan. I hate CBA, but anyway, uh, you go to CBA um, and you get a home loan. Instead of you paying the mortgage to CBA and paying interest, they pay you every month. I get that, but why would a bank do that? Well, the reality is, it's just uh, the capital is just so cheap as a, as a, and they just got to basically protect capital and they just got to lend. And so you know they're borrowing it at negative interest rates, and yep. it's just it's. It's messed up. It's effectively the clearing price. If you think about it for, if you think about money has a price and where that interest rate is set is the price at which there's a balance Mm. between those who have uh, savings who want to invest them and those who have, you know, the desire to borrow for whatever projects. And that's not just for buying homes. It's for for investing in, you know, think of corporates and and the projects that they're doing. So that, that clearing price has become negative. It also means that savers are willing to accept a negative return yeah. and that means that you know you put a hundred dollars in the bank for five years a negative interest rate you don't get your hundred dollars back and you would <laughs> yeah. argue that why not put it under the mattress but um yeah the uh the reality is people give it to the uh they're happy to accept that now sometimes there's an interesting angle there so nestle nestle one example i mentioned that's a swiss company and people are perhaps willing to receive a negative return from providing money to Nestle because they believe that the Swiss franc is going to go up. So there are nuances that can mm. be a little bit more so that's complex. That's a bit of a gamble. Uh, a gamble mm. or, or perhaps an informed decision, mm. uh, <laughs> depending on, depending on how on you your think lens. about it. <laughs> so the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help All of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Just by you sharing our episodes, you're really helping us. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. So yes. behavioural bias, I mean, we've talked, obviously, you know, our podcast, we love it and we like talking about how it affects property decisions, but, you know, how does it affect investing into shares? Because I think a lot of people 
don't know what they don't know and they don't know how they're yeah. going to act irrationally when they're trying to trade shares. Yes. And so where, <laughs> what are some of the common mistakes share traders make yeah. uh, and the problems you have with investing in equities? Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems people make is this, this um, and it is the simple one, it's the fear and the greed. That's the, that's the biggest the biggest single problem I think people face when it comes to investing. So, you know, if I sort of break it down, the, the first thing, the first bias that we're trying to counteract when it comes to investing, uh, I'd like to describe as social pressure. Uh, and it really comes back, you know, it's, it's this evolutionary mm. thing. And, you know, if you cast your mind back 5,000 years and you were living on the savannas um, of Africa, um, it certainly made sense to be part of a group. Yes. And uh, there were a lot of dangerous animals out there. So if you weren't, if you didn't fit in within the group, you probably didn't have a very good life expectancy. There's my actuarial <laughs> bit for today. Um, but no, you would, you would, you probably wouldn't last very long. So we have become and we've evolved to have a, if you like, this disposition to wanting to fit in. Mm. And and I always think the flip side of that is that if we're excluded from a group, we feel it pretty badly. It's like physical pain, mm -hmm. and that is a mechanism that means well, if 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 you've excluded me, if I've not been invited to your party, it's important that I remain connected to you how can i find another way to to bond with you so so we learn at a young age to try and um almost be chameleons and fit in with different people in order that we can mm. we can survive uh, that that manifests itself really much in crowd behavior and and you see it in the property market you see it in the equity mm. market but everyone wants to to buy and participate mm. and they, they have this fear of missing out when things are going up uh, because they'll hear at the barbecue at the weekend that their mate made some money. So, well, yep. I think I should as well. So to me, that social pressure is is really one of the biggest things. Yes. I, I, I would say as an aside, I'm pretty concerned about, um, I've got two young girls, 13 and 11, and I, I look at um, social media and I, I think, you know, we're more connected more often to more people than, than mm. ever before. And so that social pressure is is not going away. In fact, I think it's getting more and more intense. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, we, we know through history, people have this ability to maintain networks of about 150 people. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at, you're even looking at kids with 500, 1,000, 2,000 connections mm. um, on whether it's Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever they're using these days. But that to me is a... It's crazy. Like, mm. how, how can you how can you cope with all these signals coming and you're, yeah. you're always missing out? So mm. so it's really quite, um, I think there'll be a lot of problems. I think there already are a lot of problems, but that that to me is a, is a serious threat to the, the mental well-being of, of our children as they grow up. So as an investor, how do you counteract that kind of herd mentality? Because it's, you know, it's, it's obviously it happens. You know, yep. Bitcoin was a prime example last year of it. Yep. Um, you know, how do you kind of switch off the noise and get away yeah. from the herd and just stick to your, your your game plan. So so really I mean first and foremost it's about having the sort of mentality because this is this is a really uncomfortable thing to do. So you know we have a, a team of 36 guys focused on finding investment ideas and each one of them is a human being. So they're mm -hmm. not they're not immune to the same uh sentiment yes. and feeling. They they want to fit in as well. Um they want um they want some kind of sense of uh gratification from from the markets they want their they want their colleagues to respect them and all these other things that, that make it very very hard to pick ideas that are challenged within the market mm. so so first of all just just remember this is this is not an easy thing to do and we often actually say that the the best ideas we have will often be the most uncomfortable mm. at the time that we're that we're investing in them but there are a couple of things that we can do to, to help and and the first of these is we can use what we call screens so our quantitative techniques we can look we can run the numbers on lots of companies around the world and try and find out which companies exhibit the characteristics that suggest they are out of favor now simplistically think of that as a low price 
Uh, but there are lots of other things we could look at, like how the prices are moving. Uh, we can look at you know, lots of other ratios, but but effectively think of what is cheap. Mm. So you've got some fundamental rules that you run over that data and take, let's take out the human emotional element here. Yeah. Is this company really ticking all the boxes from what we've known from history? These companies generally, if they tick these boxes, they do better than others. It, it's a starting point. Yeah. And, and, there yeah. Are, and there are firms like quantitative funds, so that's all they do. They, they'll run a screen and mm. they will buy all the stocks that meet a specific criteria. And that, yeah. that to me is quite a passive way of approaching things. So we, we take that as the, that's your starting point. Mm. So is this company cheap? Now, if a company is cheap, the question really is, is, is the market... Yeah, exactly. Why? <laughs> is the market punishing it, over-punishing it? Is mm. it exaggerating the problems that the company faces? Yep. So that's, that's one way we do it. The other way we do it is by organizing our, our, our analysts into teams, generally global sector teams. So you'll have a team that looks at technology companies all around the world. And they have developed over a number of years uh, a vast amount of knowledge of what's going on within their area. And what they're trying to do, it's almost the inverse. They're trying to spot changes that take place that the market hasn't picked up on. Mm. So think of that almost as like the prices haven't moved, but we've observed something good that's yep. taking place. And so you might think of that as there's a there's a growth opportunity that that hasn't been mm. been mm -hmm. appreciated. So that is domain knowledge, that is expertise, that's human. And the other side, the screening side, is a lot more mechanical. Yeah. Uh, but but by doing the two of these, you try and find where the where the crowd is not. Yeah, and I guess around investing in property, I mean, what's what's kind of, how do you think that investing in equities and investing in property are similar, I guess? What's your kind of belief on what, what you know, skills yeah. are transferable? So, I mean, the, the, the big thing is trying to work out what are you paying and what are you getting? So it's some kind of sense of a, a call it valuation uh, methodology of, of some sense. You, so that understanding and, you know, both both of them are, are real assets. And if you think of a, I mean, if you think of property, uh, at the end of the day, it's effectively a business. Even if you buy you buy one apartment and you rent it out. If you think of that as a business, then you think of a, an equity as a, as a share in a business. So whether it's an intangible business like a Google or a Facebook, mm. or whether it's actually there are listed property companies as well where you are investing in aggregations of, of property investment. So you are running a business. So then you've got to think, well, what is the sales line, which in the property case is the, is the rental income, and then what are the costs? And I think, I think actually one of the biggest problems people have in appraising property investments is they look at the yield mm. and they forget about the cost. So, you know, we've done a lot of work on uh, the long-term benefits of holding equities against holding properties. And I think, I think that the hidden things with property probably knock 2% off the yield to start with for the cost it's going to cost you to, yes. to maintain that property. 25%. 25% of the of the income, not 25% per annum, I hope. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm thinking, sorry, I'm thinking 2% oh, here. Oh, so yes, yeah, yeah. yes. But it is, it's yep. a, you know, mm. I've, I've been a accidental landlord at one point in my life because I, I moved overseas to Singapore and mm. I had to rent out the place that I owned in uh, Sydney. And I have to say, it wasn't particularly uh, overwhelming Luc yield that I, was, yeah. <laughs> uh, that I was achieving because mm. that was where the market had got to. It was also potentially your family home, I would guess. Yes. And, and they typically don't get great yield anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, off air, you mentioned that um, you see property as passive investment. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. So look, I think about this um, when people buy a, buy a unit and they're thinking about, I'm going, to make, I'm going to make money in the property market. What they're tending to do is buy, buying a unit in a suburb, holding on to it for however long, let's say five, 10 years. The return they get from it predominantly comes from the appreciation of the area in yes. which they're in. And so we see a lot, I mean, the, the, the media covers a lot about which suburbs should you be in, hot suburbs, cool suburbs, what's been the growth rate in the different suburbs. 
most people buy something pretty close to where they are based. It tends to be a decision based on something they already know. So we, we talked mm -hmm. about the home bias mm -hmm. in the equity market. Yep. Um, in the property market, most Sydney-based investors, I suspect, buy Sydney-based properties, if yep. not properties within the next, <clears throat> you know, they may have a family home and the nearest accumulation <laughs> of um, of apartments is where they buy mm. their apartment. Yeah, sometimes next door. Yeah, but yeah. almost, oh, on this, I'll buy that. <laughs> so so, so the, really the decision is not some strategic, um, um, the way we troll over, you know, 15,000 companies in the world looking for um, 100 investments. Yeah. It's, uh, there's an apartment next door, I want to get into the property market and I'll just ride that regardless of it. So mm. I, I think it's actually a lot more passive than people think. Uh, they don't tend to do much to these units. They tend to be pretty homogenous. Uh, and so you're buying effectively a shell and then selling that shell uh, down the track. The real money in property and the, the, the rich lister type, yes. if, you're, if you're aiming for the stars, these guys at the top of the property ladder and the top of the, the, the rich list that we see and these fortunes that have been made in property, it comes from development because that is like a business. You, you find a customer need and you fulfill the customer need and by fulfilling that need, you earn a profit. And that's really what, what good businesses do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. The you know, if you want to get rich fast, property is not going to happen, right? Yes. You can't get, um, you know, like for example, I've got lots of clients who work at Atlassian, right? Like, you know, their share prices has gone from thirty dollars a share to one hundred and forty something last week, so yeah. five times in the last couple of years. Property, come on, go, you can't find a property that's gone up five times. So you're not going to get rich fast with property. And I think a lot of people think you can approach property that way and yeah. it's just, you're just going to get burnt. The only way to do it that way is through development. So yes. you're never going to get on that rich list just building a portfolio of properties. Yeah. It's just, it's, that's not what you're trying to achieve here. I, I think that that rich list concept or, or, or culture that we're sort of developing in this country, and the media loves the, the you know, this guy's made a billion dollars, this guy's made, the Atlassian guy's probably made 10. Yeah. Um, but but they love that. It's a headline and the $100 million property and so on. And so I think I think for young people, it's uh, I often find when I meet people wanting to get into my industry, the, the fund management industry, it's been a, it has produced some stars over the years. And a lot of people have a sense that that's where they want to get. And they're in a hurry to get there as well. Um, you touched on Atlassian. Atlassian has done a, done a fantastic job build it, building a business. But, you know, it's the kind of companies like Atlassian at the moment, which are very, very hot in the stock market. Mm -hmm. So people are... Uh, they, they want businesses, we're in a world where the economy is not growing uh, particularly fast. So people want to own companies that they think will grow regardless of the economy. They're trying to protect themselves from a slow economy. And they're paying an increasingly large premium to own a company like Atlassian. Mm -hmm. I don't think buying Atlassian shares today is going to be a way to get rich quick. Yes. Uh, their business <laughs> is worth over $30 billion. Um, yes. You know, fantastic what it's achieved, but these group of companies, we're seeing people paying very, very high prices. And it's reminiscent of the tech bubble back in 99, 2000, when anything technology-related started to attract a premium. So Atlassian may go on to be one of the ones that that, that persists and is, is incredibly successful in the long term, but there are a lot of businesses priced like that that, that will not be, and that's where people really risk losing uh, permanent loss of capital. Yeah, Roger Montgomery talked about that when we interviewed him a few episodes back. Um and when it comes to property, it's interesting what you say there about it being quite passive because, yeah, I think you're right to a certain degree. When you yeah. buy in a suburb compared to the rest of the country and yeah. all the other places that you yeah. could have bought in, that suburb is going to perform in its way. Yes. You know, so location is is sort of 80% of the, the job. Yeah. But within that, you can actually be an active property investor in the sense that if you are very, very careful in your asset selection, yeah. you can outperform that area. But yeah, if you're buying a homogenous product, yep. you know, 
Mm. In fact, I would suspect homogenous product, you're going to underperform that market. But anyway. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, I think what Douglas <clears throat> is trying to say is that with the passive side, most property investors are completely just buying and without, and, uh, without thinking yes, about it from a real a, yeah. mindset. And, you know. and So it's that sort of that unconscious sort of way yeah. of going into it and not actually quizzing it, interrogating it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting observation. Well, they, and then, you know, they've, or every, you know, person who's become a property investor, they've just based their decisions on what they've done. Or yes. what their parents or have done. Or what their friends have done. Because or their friends. Like at the barbecue you mentioned yeah. earlier, like, you know, I'm doing really well and you should you should do it too. Yeah. You know, I've spoken to so many people that, you know, they've gone along to a barbecue and someone said, oh, I've just bought, a, you know, an apartment off the plan on this fabulous building and I'm going to be I'm going to be rich through property. You should yeah. do it too. And they've dragged all their friends into it, you know. Yes. It's it's like, but nobody tells the, uh, the bad stories. No. I do worry about that. And if you are one of those people who are recommending stuff to your friends and your family and things like that and you... Yeah really don't know what you're doing, just be really careful what you say because if friends and family are acting on what you say, you've got to be really sure that, you, you know, you know what you're talking about because <laughs> the reality is sometimes people do take decisions on this and I've seen oh, it time do. and time again. Yeah. Many people um, like that. Especially when they've made that mistake themselves, they've, this confirmation bias kicks in yep. and then they want to believe it and they start trying to get people on their side and then they get other people to believe it and mm. then you're part of the crowd and things like that. I think back, the social back, pressure. Yeah, back to the social back. pressure, I, yeah. I mean, I often talk about the barbecue is the most dangerous place for investors in, in this country. And it's, don't uh, go to barbecues. Yeah, just don't, there you go. That's, that's one piece of, fun, you know, it's not financial advice, but uh, yeah. general advice, uh, don't, don't go to barbecues. But, you know, it, it's people have got, you're surrounded by people you like mm. and you've had a few drinks and people tend to, um, you know, share their stories. And they, as you said, they tell the good stories. But if you step back a little bit and you look at Australia, you know, about 60 years ago, people were being paid to move here. Mm. And today it ranks consistently as one of the most desirable places in the world to live. So we have had that, that big uplift in, if you like, what the capital growth as a result of not just income growth, wage growth. We've had this kind of undesirable place to live to desirable place to live mm. in, the, in the context of the world. And, and that's something that I think will never be repeated. You so don't we've think had it'll the, continue? It, it, it may, the market may continue to do okay, but we've had this let's say the multiple of income, it was three yeah. times income 60 years ago. It's 12, 12 times income yeah. today or whatever. Mm. We're not going to go from 12 to 48 times income mm. or something. Mm. So the, the growth rates that people are using are probably higher than you would expect to get in the future. So you then step back and say, at best, I'm going to get wage growth uh, as the appreciation on my property. It's a different, it's a different mindset. Mm. But don't go, this guy got wealthy from it or my friend did well owning a property 10 mm. years ago. Well, my, a lot of them also think they did well, but they don't really know that they did well or didn't do well. They've got no concept of opportunity costs. They haven't actually benchmarked yeah. it against anything. Yes. They haven't, you know, it's just a feeling like it went up in value. And so therefore I'm really good, smart property investor. But what about leverage though? Because, I mean, we've had yeah. this conversation with a couple of, um, you know, equities yes. specialists mm. and you, you, sim you simply can't borrow as much money to buy shares, right? Or you can, but, you know, yeah. it's a bit riskier. <clears throat> So if you borrow money directly to buy a share portfolio, what we call a margin loan, mm. they actually charge you quite a high rate. And yeah. the big risk with a margin loan that is is that if the value of the shares falls temporarily below the value, or not even the value of the loan, but the loan with the cushion, yeah. you will be asked to effectively either top it up or mm. liquidate the positions. And that can be fatal because that's exactly the wrong everyone's time selling sell. at the wrong time mm. and you never want to be a forced seller. That's what you happened know, at the JSC. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, 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 you know, borrowing to buy things and then being forced to sell them is a is a, is a disaster. Mm. Now you you can borrow against your property. Yes. Uh, at the rate 
at the residential lending rate to buy a portfolio of shares, uh, and then you're never marked to market because you're using effectively like the the, the redraw type, mm. type type facility. So that's a more uh, cautious way, a more mm-hmm. sensible way if if someone has that opportunity. But again, that's uh, we don't want to go into the realms of of advice. So no, it's really no. good point, and I'll probably step in there then. But I mean the you know <laughs> I mean you're right when someone has got very limited equity in their home, um, you know they can leverage much further into property because. If you've got very limited equity, let's say 200 grand, and it's quite a lot, but if you've got 200, you could then go borrow, let's just call it another 800 and, and buy a property for a million dollars, right? But if, for example, you've got a $2 million house and it's paid off, well, you've got now $1.6 million of equity. And really the discussion now comes up is, well, actually, do I put you know $500,000 into shares and a million dollars into property? Yeah. And you've got both on the table. And mm. I think very few people get to that point till they're generally... Yeah. you know, late 40s to 50. And then this is when equities are actually potentially a better option as well mm. because time's much shorter. Um, you might want to be selling down in yeah. a shorter time frame. And so, yeah, it's not so much properties better than shares or you can leverage more. It's each individual situation. It's, yeah. it's, but a lot of people think you can just always leverage more into equities so or into, into, into property. property. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the valuation thing which you, you spoke around there and it's 12 times, I think that's a really good, good point because a lot of people miss that and they don't really understand that it is highly priced yep. and a lot of the things that drove the market in the last 20 to 30 years, you know, can't happen again. We can't go yep. from mm. one high income worker and yep. one working at one, you know, at home with the kids, let's yep. say, to two high income earners yep. um, pricing property. So, you know, there Although are kind in of- In certain demographics, so there's still a lot of that. And and quite expensive markets, mm. you know, where you yep. you still do have one primary earner. So I think that you know, that's um, you know, getting into demographics with that or yep. um is sort of interesting. You know what I mean? So yeah, and the cost of capital mm. though is much cheaper now. Yep. So you know, if if interest rates are six or seven percent, yep. And you got twelve times salary. Well, and of course it can't grow anymore. Yep. But mm. you know, if interest rates are one percent and then one percent for yep. say ten years. Um, but wage growth isn't equal as well. And so, yes. you know, if you're investing in an index, you would expect that index to perform based on the wage growth across a whole economy. But certain sections of the Australian economy, for example, the tech sector, yes. or will do mm. get much greater wage growth, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. And so that will, you know, means that some property potentially could get returns a lot higher than... Yeah you know, the, the general wage growth. Maybe you want to buy a property where the Atlassian, uh, Atlassian employees are going to be based. I mean, that's, that's the kind of idea is, is these suburbs will probably do better uh, than some of the others. But uh, well, Atlassian is an interesting story because a lot of their employees aren't Australian. Yeah. You know, from Belgium, they're Spanish, they're English, they're French, um, and they're tech, you know, and they come here. And so they've come here on a four, five, seven, and now they're earning 200 grand a year, 150 grand a year. Yeah. And then they're new entrants into the property market. Yeah. So, I guess the you know the real question for the Australian property markets is whether we still stay high on that desirable list yeah. on you know a place to move to and yeah. I guess it's what's your thoughts around the Australian population policy and whether you think that'll continue Yeah look I mean growing population is is healthy uh, for economies so as you look at the way an economy grows there's only two ways it grows one is individuals become more productive and the other is you get more people into the workforce yes. and you know I lived in Singapore for a while and you know they tended to grow when they added when they allowed people to come in and when they and when they slowed foreign workers coming in, the economy tended to slow. So it's, um, it's actually a massive advantage that we have here in Australia is we have this huge empty space uh, and we can, we can grow in the same way America has a much better demographics than Europe 
and and the American productivity is not particularly impressive, but the economy grows because they add people. And so, uh, look, I, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant myself, uh, mm. so I, I'm a big advocate for welcoming people who mm. can make a, make a contribution. Uh, we're not here to be too political, but I, yeah. you know, I, I definitely think that if people have something to offer, um, then it's, it's, it's good to have them uh, coming in and, and, and helping to grow the economy. The, 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 a friend of mine lives in Norway, and I was chatting to him the other day, and he was saying, you know, they've gone through, most, most women in Norway work. Uh, Norway is a very, very high tax uh, rate. So what ends up happening is people in employment tend to have very equal mm. net or take-home pay. And so he said, it's interesting, his, um, you know, his wife uh, has moved to Norway and basically everything is priced off two people having an income. Mm. And so it's a very expensive company. So he said if, if one of them was to drop out of the workforce, then they would have real problems yeah. uh, with the cost of living. However, the flip side of that is that Norwegian companies are very conscious of that and he goes home at four o'clock every day. Mm. And, and they, they, they expect most people, their kids, they drop the kids off at school and then the, both parents go home uh, and so they've got very different working policies and much more flexible to, to what we have here in general. So it'll be interesting at a social level just to see how how things evolve and, and maybe there are trends, you know, things like you know, longer term autonomous driving and various other things, how how cities evolve and how, how work practices evolve. And that, that will be an interesting way that you can make money actively mm. in, in property by anticipating the areas that, that benefit and the areas that, that suffer mm. over time. So there's um, a lot of people in property are either on two camps. They're either very pro-property um, mm. and they always think it's going to keep going up and they're a bit, you know, biased and don't really understand that, you know, not all property is equal. Yes. And then you've got the other ones, the doomsdays. And, yep. you know, they're a growing cohort. Um, yep. A lot of them are frustrated first-home buyers that yep. can't get in the market, which, <laughs> yep. is, which is fair enough. Which um, you're thinking. <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, have made a bad mistake and then they've yep. lost money or something like that. And they're like, well, mm. I'm not going there again. Yep. With investing, do you think it's very dangerous to be in both or either camp? Yeah. And how do you kind of stay balanced in the middle? Yeah, and I think it's having this sort of mental flexibility. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that's very important is the world is always changing. So, you know, we spend most of our energy is really understanding what is like what was going to happen, but 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 by virtue of that, you're thinking what is going to change, how it's going to change. Um and if you absolutely back yourself into a corner, then you just can't have that mental flexibility mm. so there, there could be it could be perfectly reasonable at a point in time to be a doomsday uh have the doomsday view things are very very expensive i don't want to go near that and we, we have that view on certain segments and that's why i was you know when we when you touched on it last year and it wasn't a go at them as a company it was yes. more mm. that the space they're in there is a lot of hype at the moment and so there are a lot of technology companies that will mm. never succeed that are that are priced as if they're very successful so we will always find areas that you'd say, absolutely, we don't want to go there. But you make money by by changing that and becoming a big advocate of that area uh, at a later point when when the perhaps the, the prices have, have readjusted or the dynamics have changed of yep. the industry. Mm. So it's I think it's about being, with all this stuff, it's about being flexible. It's about being curious. Um, you know, if we're going to hire an analyst to our team, what are we looking for? We're looking for someone who loves business. So I guess in a property sense, you'd want people who love the idea of real estate, mm. but, but broadly similar. And then it's having this curiosity because you've got to mm. just, you can't just take things at face value. Most people presented with information will come to broadly similar conclusions. And that's why you get the opportunity because everyone becomes negative on something because it doesn't feel right, but they don't triangulate that back to the, to the price yeah. and the future opportunity. And then, and then you've got to be brave and because you, you, you know, to, yeah. you're actually sticking your head out and go, you're all individuals. I'm not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you yeah. have to be willing to act without without full information. You'll never mm. have full information, mm. and, and a lot of people 
struggle with the transition from from being an analyst, which is idea you're coming up with the ideas, to being a portfolio manager, which requires you to actually execute mm. on the decisions. Mm. And that execution, there are certain people are are good at acting. A lot of people are good at just sort of suggesting and then and not not being able to go to that that next level. What's well, uh, your reputation on the line, isn't it? Really, I mean, you got clients there that that yeah. may not be that happy with certain outcomes and you know you've got to back that and you've got to have justifications for that and explanations i would think and and as a contrarian the biggest problem is your reputation on the line you're buying something that is ugly it's unloved it's out of favor (laughs) and it will probably go down before it goes up yeah so so you know we we bring a young analyst in and and they go through this thing that i sort of call zero to one when they have to get their first stock idea put forward and in the portfolio but up to that point they feel that they're not making a contribution Mm. Mm. Then they get their first idea. You know, someone's someone's bought into their idea. They have one idea. Their entire reputation in the firm mm. is is based on this one company, and all they talk about is this one company. And <laughs> inevitably, if it goes down, then it's tough for them. Mm. But that builds up the the, the fortitude that mm. you need in the future. The worst ones that we've had guys in the past where their their first idea goes up a lot, and they're terrible because they start to believe that they <laughs> oh, believe that they, they believe that they know what yeah. they're doing. And if they get two right in a row, then you've really got to worry about them. And, uh, <laughs> so when market. I worked at Platinum, I remember a uh, young chap at the time, Dean, uh, oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, I remember there was this, he was, you know, trying to become an analyst and, uh, you know, early days. And yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember just talking to him, you know, at the Friday sort of drinks about an experience, how he had to pitch an idea and Kerr was there and, you know, and it's very confronting because he had a lot riding on this because he'd done a lot yeah. of research and it was paper companies in Canada or something oh. at the time. And it was, um, yeah, and it's just so it's very hard, you know. Just to, yeah. the problem is you've got to know when you're wrong. And so, how do you mm. know when you should change your view on something as an investor? Yep. And really, you know, take a different tack because a lot of property investors, you know, and there'll be a lot of people listening right now. Yeah. You know, have got properties they have underperformed for many years, and the easy thing to do is just to forget about it and continue yep. with life. Mm. Yep. But you're wasting time, your biggest asset. So how do you how do you come to that realization and and take action? Yeah, and that's the difficult thing in property because generally, you know, given people's level of wealth and, and buying an investment probably is a very very large portion of their wealth. The good thing with a portfolio of shares is you're probably not taking such a big position yes. on each of these, okay. so you can get yes. rid of a company. But you know, what do we do? So 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 when we're looking at a company, what's what's the the role of the analyst? Is effectively to to determine what you might call the roadmap for what we think the company will achieve in the next let's call it three, four, five years. So then what you do is you track the company against that roadmap. You don't track the company against its share price. So where the share price is interesting is, you know, if the share price goes up very quickly after you've bought something, you might want to say, look, this has become too expensive. We've, we've achieved all the returns we want to make. If the share price is going against you and the company is following the roadmap, you can buy more of that share. Because mm. as long as you have the the, the confidence in mm. the in the roadmap and what the company's going to achieve. So we actually talk a little bit about that as um, thinking like a private owner. So if you bought the company and you owned the company and it wasn't listed on the stock market, you'd never have to look at the share price. All you'd have to assess is, am I getting mm. an adequate return oh, that's a really good, from, yeah. from owning this mm. company? That is one of the biggest advantages in property over equities. We get mm. a price quoted to us every day. Oh yeah. People ask you about the price. They, they, you know, there's always pressure from mm. externally, from clients, internally, from colleagues. So you have to try and detach yourself from that and just say, is this business doing what I, what I mm. expected of it? There is a, there is a, a bias or a behavior, if you like, known as loss aversion. And loss aversion <laughs> is this idea that we feel losses more yeah. than we enjoy mm. equivalent gains. The, the way I, I think about that is that the market 
stock market on a daily basis is a coin toss. It goes up about 50.3% of the time, falls 49.7. So mm. to all intents and purposes, it's a coin toss. But the problem here is every night you go home and you turn on the TV and you get told what the stock market's done. You get up in the morning, you put on the radio, you get told what the stock market's done. You see it on websites. Mm. And in, here in Sydney, you see it on uh, tickers on buildings as well. So you cannot get away from this coin toss. Mm. But I used to ask groups of financial advisors in, in presentations, does anyone want to toss a coin for $1,000? No one ever did. I mm. One guy did once, but mm. um, but, but you know that was out <laughs> of hundreds. Uh, well, I actually won. It's it awkward. <laughs> it, you're not allowed to pay commission as an investment manager to a financial advisor. Mm. So if he'd won the coin toss, it was going to be a very awkward legal situation. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I won the cost toss. It made it, it made it easier. I used to use it as an example. Did he pay to, you? Uh, he didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't accept. The, <laughs> I couldn't accept the money. Uh, the point. The point. I was. I was happy to take that bet a hundred mm. times because I knew I'd probably end up mm. breaking even. Mm. But to an individual to take that bet once, the idea of losing $1,000 was far more confronting yeah. than, than making $1,000. Yes. And so, and we used 1000 because if you used a dollar, it was probably wasn't going to express it yeah. properly. So, so property, you have that advantage. You don't see your value every day, although there are websites now that estimate it for you yeah. on an hourly oh, basis. Yeah. Although with loss aversion, we've, we've discussed this <clears throat> section of the podcast a number yeah. of times that people who know that they really should get rid of a poor performing asset, yeah. they won't sell it because of loss aversion. Yes. They don't want to actually realise that loss. They don't want to accept it and yeah. they'd rather just pretend or believe yes. that things are going to get good. Yeah, and that's that's a problem because you really need to just constant. and it comes back to that mental agility. Mm. You, mm. Want to, you want to constantly be reassessing. It's, it's really a question with a, if you own a property or if you own any shares, would I buy this today? Yeah. Mm. And if the answer is I wouldn't buy it today, then... The answer What's might changed? might be you should be selling it mm. today, and and it will be things are changing. You know, it could be someone's yeah. built a railway station next door to your property that is a good thing or a bad thing. Yes. Or someone, your know, crime rate's gone up or whatever it is, and you and you you need to be constantly recalibrating what uh, how the, the the property is doing against mm. the roadmap, if you like, for the for the suburb or for the building itself. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's really. I mean, it's kind of where you. To, to counter that confirmation bias, you kind of research things that kind of disprove or go against what you believe. And yep. you're kind of constantly checking and thinking, am I right? Am I wrong? Mm. Am I, you know, am I getting too, you know, wound up in my beliefs? Yep. And, you know, that, that to do that as an investor, it, it takes a lot of time and you've yep. got to do a lot of reading and constantly be questioning things. And, um, but if you've got that gut feeling that's, you know, that something's not right, you've got to, you've got to research it. I because, think so, yeah. You know, yeah. it comes at a point in time when you've, you kind of, you'll know, and then at some point you're going to, you know, re resent yourself or, you know, yeah. get regret it and then feel guilty and yeah. I should have done this years ago and then that's just going to build to something that doesn't need to happen. So yeah. if, if you've already got that feeling, you know, try to figure it out and, and get a solution in place. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Douglas, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Look, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I talk to people more about, about the stock market than, than about property. So uh, rather rather than having a property dumbo, I think I think the the equity dumbo or the, or the stock market dumbo, it is applicable. I'm always being asked, <laughs> when is the next crash going to happen? Mm. Uh, yeah. And I think it's this idea that people believe that as professional investors, we have this crystal ball, if you like, on the future. And also, which, which we don't, uh, as I say, we're just constantly trying to reappraise yes. returns that we can get and, and being flexible to that. But the second thing is this idea that even that a crash itself is predictable. 
and there's some uh, there's some interesting work on this. Uh, there's work by by academics on it. But but the idea that the analogy I like to use a simple analogy is just thinking about an avalanche, and, and thinking about um, if you're a skier and you go to uh, a resort at certain times of the year, there'll be areas that have warning signs. You know, do not go here. Avalanche risk. Now, there's always going to be someone at the end of the night who comes into a bar who's done some dangerous off-piece run. They've had a great time, full of adrenaline, probably doing tequila shots and telling you what a great time they had. Comes back to that fear of missing out. You think, mm. geez, I wish, I wish that was me. That sounds really, really mm. exciting. Mm. The most sensible thing to do is just to avoid the area because no one can predict whether or not an avalanche will actually take place. What you can do is you can identify that mm. there's a risk of an avalanche. Yeah. And I think when it comes back to this idea that we have this perfect vision or this crystal ball we can just say that area looks dangerous we're avoiding it and therefore we're, we're looking somewhere else and uh, that's the question i probably get asked most often yeah uh, when's this all gonna when's this all gonna blow up and end in tears it's very very similar to you know that oh, where's the next hot spot you know yep. where's gonna go up you know where's gonna go down etc mm. etc and i say you know what it'll go up a little bit you know, in the whole yep. scheme of things, across yep. the whole period of time that you're going to own a property, mm. yeah. um, and then it'll just settle down, or it'll go down because it was yep. just it was mm. should never have gone up in the first place. So, yep. it's there's a lot of parallels with that. Look, thank you so much for your time, Douglas. We've, um, you know, this this has really been, I guess, theme of this one has been about change and uncertainty, and you know where opportunities lie in that versus where you know the dangers lie in that, and that's yep. been very, very informative, and and some insights into China as well, and um, and Kevin Rudd's story. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's gold. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Douglas. No, thanks for having me. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... So we had some very interesting conversations with Douglas, a lot around human behaviour, you know, behavioural science or behavioural finance, as uh, he referred to it. I like when he was talking about shares and, and the question you should ask yourself if you're owning something that you might be a bit of a dud, which is, would I buy this today? And... Through that lens and asking yourself that question, you can actually determine whether you should hold on to that share or not. And that's what he's talking about in the context of equities. Now, he also talked a lot about social pressure or, or social proof and fear and greed and FOMO and those sorts of things. And, and they are often what drives the property market just as it does the share market. And so a good question to ask when you're buying in a hot market, when you're looking at an asset, a property, and you might be tempted to buy just anything. That'll do because everything's going up and you've got FOMO going on, fear of missing out, and you're succumbing to social pressure that everyone else is doing this and you're not doing this. And I know that right the minute when we're recording this, we are not in a boom market, but, you know, we'll have another one at some point. A good question to ask yourself is, would I buy this if it was a buyer's market? Would I buy this if I had an absolute pick of everything in this marketplace? So it's a slight uh, change on uh, Douglas's question, would I buy this today? And so then you can reflect on whether you want to keep owning it. Because if you do ask that question, would I buy this if it was a buyer's market? Down the track, when you go to reflect on your portfolio or your or your investment, if you only have one, and you ask yourself, would I buy this today? Well, the answer will be yes, because you would have made that decision with the right sort of information, the right thinking in the first place. 
Please join us for our next episode when we interview Nikki Hutley from Deloitte Access Economics. Nikki runs the urban advisory practice there and she's responsible for many very enlightening reports. Now, two of which we're going to discuss in a fair amount of detail. One is on population growth and density and how that impacts on our cities, the way we live, property prices, etc., etc. And the other is about the future of work and we talk about how that's going to impact on the way we live as well. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice. The people of Platinum have also asked us to add this disclaimer to this episode. Any commentary relating to Platinum reflects views and beliefs at the time, which is subject to change without notice. No representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to the accuracy, adequacy or reliability of any statements, opinions or other information given.